again, and welcome to part two of Shackleton's Voyage on this episode of the History Cache. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I definitely suggest you go give that a listen first. This part of the journey will make a lot more sense if you do. Last time, we left off as the crew of the ship Endurance was trapped in the ice, their ship frozen and unbudging despite agonizing hours of labor, with the crew doing everything they could to break their ship free. No amount of chopping at the ice with axes and picks made any difference. The ship at full steam with all masts raised, pushing as hard as she could, just didn't have enough power to break free. The ice was simply too strong, and it was getting stronger. The air was getting colder, and winter was coming. The radio was useless. This was the first month of 1915, and the sparse SOS signals of Morse code they were trying their hardest to broadcast disappeared into the icy, vast nothingness, the signal being too weak with the state of radio still in its infant stages. Shackleton had just told his exhausted crew that they would be wintering on the ship stuck in the pack ice as it was obvious they had nothing left to try. They would drift, held fast in the ice of the Weddell Sea for the entirety of the Antarctic winter until the warmth of spring would open a way for them to escape, hoping that as they drifted, they were heading towards land and not out even further into the cold expanse of one of Earth's last unexplored places. They were hopeful and fully believed that spring would bring with it their escape and allow them to finish their mission of being the first human beings ever to cross the continent of Antarctica on foot. But they would be wrong. They were beginning one of the most treacherous and grueling expeditions that anyone would ever endure, pushing the limits, mental and physical, of the human condition in a way that made the impossible become the possible. Let's see what happened and hear more of their story in part two. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The 28 members of the Sea Party, one leader, 26 crew, and one stowaway were stranded, and they knew they'd be stuck until spring, which was months away. So they prepared for the dark of winter as best they could, and the trapped ship quickly became home, as comfortable a home you could imagine under the circumstances. They lovingly began referring to it as the Ritz, and made the most of what they could. The morale of the crew was generally high. They believed their situation was temporary, and they were right about that. They just were unaware that it was destined to evolve from a life of relative discomfort to one of frozen agony. They were good at keeping themselves occupied, and Shackleton, their leader, proved to be particularly calculating at knowing how to prevent a dip in morale, keeping them busy and surprising them with extra rations when the mood began to turn foul were two methods he employed that seemed to work even at the worst of times. The sea being so frozen, the crew was able and allowed to spend many of the remaining daylight hours off of the ship and on the pack ice, as long as they didn't wander too far and stayed together. While stranded, there were only about three hours of work for the crew to do a day, and to stave off their boredom, they regularly played hockey and football and spent long hours training the sled dogs they had brought with them. 
They had brought 69 dogs with them, all husky mixes, and the dogs were to play an essential part in hauling the supplies the party would need across the continent. However, it wasn't long before the 69 were reduced to 54. For everything they brought with them, all the obsessively calculated planning of supplies, tools, and necessities they would need for their journey, they still forgot to bring the worm powder they would need for the dogs. So many of them were suffering from worms now and were shot as there was no way for them to be treated. There was a cook, a meteorologist, a biologist, physicians, and even an artist among the crew, but no one thought to bring a veterinarian. But some of the lost dog numbers were made up for when there were two surprise litters of puppies born with eight of the pups surviving. The crew was hopeful that the puppies would grow into more amiable sled dogs than their forebears. The dogs had been imported from Canada and had a natural ability to handle cold weather, as well as an aptitude for sledging, but they were described as incredibly unruly. They fought with one another, they were difficult to train, and generally disobedient. Looking back now, it's probably fair to assume that some of the problems with the dogs were not only the fault of the animals. No one on the crew was an animal behavioralist or even had much experience with training dogs, so their natural high energy, coupled with the inexperience of the men caring for them, made for a frustrating experience for both the dogs and the humans. But the crew did their best and developed a great interest in the dogs and engaged in fierce competition to be named official dog driver or driving assistant. They made each dog their own individual igloo on the ice in order to give them more space than they were getting on the ship. They referred to these as dogaloos, and they were made of blocks of ice and snow. To keep the dogs from running off or from fighting amongst themselves, they were each tethered next to their own dogaloo. They did this by taking eight inches of the dog's chain and burying it in the snow. Some ice fragments would be thrown on top, and then water was poured over all of it. It was so cold that the ice cemented the chain in place, just as well as concrete would have done. Despite the cold temperatures, the dogs seemed to prefer spending most of their time outside of their igloos and only slept inside when the weather was particularly cold. Most of the crew seemed to generally enjoy life on the Ritz, but Shackleton, a man seasoned in Antarctic exploration and well aware of how disastrous even the most meticulously planned expeditions could get, was internally anxious and constantly weighing different possibilities in his mind. There were only three likely scenarios about what was going to happen. Best case, they would drift closer to land and finish sailing to Vashel Bay, where they would set up camp and begin their overland trek as soon as the pack ice began to release its hold on the ship. A path through the ice would fortuitously present itself, and they could carry on with only a few months lost to the unforeseen, unseasonably nasty northernly gales. A second option was to load up the sledges now with everything they could carry, including all the lumber they would need for constructing a camp, and all the food for the men and the dogs, everything they would need to finish their journey, and haul it over the pack ice until they hit land and made camp on solid ground. Shackleton seriously considered this option, but given the unreliability of the pack ice, this option was not optimal. It only took one crack in the ice or one thin ice flow covered in deceptive deep snow for them to lose a sledge or a pack of dogs or even crew members through the thin ice and frozen sea. 
The third option, and the least favorable, would be to haul everything they could over the ice, including their three smaller open water boats, each about 14 feet long, until they found open water. They could then try navigating the Weddell Sea in the smaller boats until hitting land. This was a last resort, as the sea was treacherous, even for a big 144-foot three-masted brigantine like the Endurance. In this scenario, the goal wouldn't necessarily be to make it to Vashel Bay and continue with the transcontinental journey, but to find a whaling station or a research station where they could find rescue. But it was early in the winter, and for now, things seemed to be playing out well. While they waited, their biggest task was securing meat for the dogs and for themselves as a way to save the rations they had brought. It hadn't been in their plans to have to winter on the ice, and those extra extended months meant having to do everything they could to make up for the rations it meant they'd lose. Apart from meat, blubber was a necessity as well. It could be used as fuel for the ship and for light, and was even used to cook meals. The marine animals of the Weddell Sea, including seals and penguins, were all covered in a thick layer of blubber that helped keep them warm. Through February, hunting was easy. Seals were everywhere. At times, they recorded seeing upwards of 200 at a time from the ship's masthead. Trigger warning, I'm going to talk about some sad seal and penguin things for the next minute or two. The reason it was easy to secure so much meat was because the animals of the Weddell Sea where the crew was stranded had no previous experience being around human beings. There were research stations and whaling stations in the Antarctic, but the crew of the Endurance was in the middle of nowhere, on the ice, at coordinates where no one had ever been before, and the animals hadn't yet learned to fear humankind. All their natural predators, mainly orcas and sea leopards, hunted them in the water, so on the ice they felt they were safe. Until we arrived. All the hunters had to do was walk up calmly to a seal or a penguin and just pull the trigger. I'm not a hunter, so maybe I'm biased, but that seems like some shoddy sportsmanship. But sad as it was, they needed the meat to survive. When they killed a seal, some of which weighed 400 pounds, or about 182 kilos, the task of hauling it back to camp was strenuous, and they had to do that quickly, because if their kill froze before they butchered it, their hands would suffer from serious frostbite. By March, the days started getting shorter, and game grew more sparse as the world prepared for winter. With game being harder to find, Worsley, a captain and third-in-command of the expedition, was tasked with spotting game from the crow's nest, as it was agreed he had the best eyesight for the job, being able to spy a seal or a penguin three and a half miles away. By now, everyone had started calling him Wuzzles, and every time I read that, I think of Snuggles, the laundry bear. He was equipped with binoculars and telescopes. He had a megaphone, not the electric variety we have today, but literally just a cone that was configured with funnels that made you louder when you yelled into it. He would shout and wave a big flag for signaling the direction of prey or the presence of orcas. No one knew much about the behavior of orcas in 1915, and everyone was afraid of them. I lost count of how many times Shackleton mentioned them in his book as if they were about to jump out of the water and eat everyone in his crew. They do have a tendency to jump onto the ice and grab seals reposed on ice floes, 
and it was feared that orcas were unable to distinguish a seal from a human being while they were under the ice looking up. So the crew was afraid that one would break through the ice in a thinner area and grab anyone who was standing around unawares. In their journals and writings, they only referred to orcas as killers, but their fears were totally unfounded. You know how many people have been killed by wild orcas in all of recorded history? Zero. In 1910, members of Scott's Terra Nova expedition claimed that orcas tried to tip an ice floe that their photographer was standing on with a team of sled dogs, but nothing of consequence happened. After that, the record is silent until a surfer in California in 1972 reported that he had been bitten by one, but the documentation on this seems to be shaky at best. In 2000, in Helm Bay, Alaska, a boy was nudged by one in four feet of water, but not bitten or attacked. In 2011, a BBC film crew's boat was nearly upended by a group of orcas, and in 2014, a diver in New Zealand was pulled underwater for 40 seconds because an orca grabbed a bag containing crayfish and sea urchins he had on him. But once the driver freed himself from the rope, it was clear the orca had no interest in him. He survived unscathed. In 2017, some surfers in a surfing competition in Norway were charged by an orca, but it never made contact with them. People were calling it an unprecedented attack, but marine biologists soon chimed in to clear the sensationalist headlines. Orcas are intelligent, and the biologists explained that the orca may have believed the surfer to be a seal, but realized once it came close that it wasn't, quickly just losing interest. A captive orca named Tilikum was responsible for drowning three people while in captivity, and the reasons for that are debated, but there are, as of this recording, no confirmed fatal attacks on humans from orcas in the wild. But the Sea Party knew none of this, so orcas were a constant worry throughout their journey. One legitimate fear was deceptive ice. By March, there were already two recorded instances of crew members falling through the ice. Worsley fell through during a game of football, but was quickly rescued by his teammates. The geologist James Wardy fell through as he was attempting to measure the thickness of the younger ice beyond the ship. His companions hurriedly pulled him out before he was fully submerged, saving his life. Apart from these mishaps, the crew was in decent shape in April when the days were getting noticeably shorter. By now, they had amassed about 5,000 pounds, or about 2,270 kilos of meat and blubber, which Shackleton estimated would last them about 90 days. In early May, they estimated that they had drifted with the ice about 130 miles, or just over 210 kilometers. They were still trapped fast in a million square miles of ice, being helplessly rotated with the currents and the winds of the Weddell Sea. And finally, the sun rose above the water for the last time. When it dipped down beneath the horizon, it too seemed to become trapped in the ice of the Weddell Sea, dead to winter. A faint twilight lingered for days. The hazy outline of the ship against the quiet sky grew fainter and fainter, darker and darker. Distances became deceptive. The ice was lost to blackness. And finally, even the half-light of twilight disappeared, leaving them alone in the darkness.
What we've come to call the polar night is experienced only in the polar circles. It occurs when the Earth's axial tilt shrouds Antarctica in darkness for half the year. Though a faint twilight is visible at either end of the polar night, the world lives in blackness for at least three months, sometimes more. The physiological and psychological effects of this darkness were not understood in Shackleton's day and have only been researched well in the last couple of decades. NASA has been studying the mental health of polar scientists to better understand what the effects of extended periods of isolation would have on the psychological well-being of astronauts on a mission to Mars. The living conditions on Antarctica today for researchers are starkly different than what they were for Shackleton and his crew. Research stations now have internet access, workers can Skype with family and friends back home, they have plenty of food, healthcare, entertainment, and the harsh environment, when inside the stations anyway, has been diffused and poses no serious threat. But even with these comfortable conditions, the psychological and physiological stresses of the long polar night are still inescapable. In 2007, a NASA meta-analysis cited 6.4% of employees at McMurdo Station were suffering from a variety of mental disorders that became severe enough to warrant diagnosis. Mood disorders, personality disorders, sleep disorders, substance-related disorders, and adjustment disorders were all identified. I want to share with you now the three main disorders that are most often associated with the polar night, and all three of these have presented huge problems for the earliest polar explorers. First, loss of daylight results in subsyndromal seasonal affective disorder, usually referred to as the acronym SAD, which is believed to be caused by the accelerated production of melatonin by the pineal gland during prolonged periods of darkness, causing and exacerbating symptoms of depression. Second, something called polar T3 syndrome occurs when cold-related changes in thyroid functioning cause effects similar to hypothyroidism. This can include an inability to fall into a state of REM or even remain asleep, which can cause mood disorders and greatly reduce cognitive performance. Lastly, there is winter over syndrome, which also encompasses depressive symptoms, insomnia, confusion, memory loss, and difficulty concentrating and it can put the sufferer in a trance-like state called the Arctic Stare, in which they appear to be in a waking dream-like state, just staring off into nothing. All of these symptoms seem to grow much more pronounced in what's been called the third quarter effect. This occurs when a person comes to the realization that their expedition is only halfway over, and that they still have long, harrowing months ahead, months of isolation, lack of privacy, and stressful darkness that is already weighing heavily. And that all occurs today. Imagine the effects of these symptoms and disorders back in 1915. The crew of the Endurance was isolated in a way few of us could imagine. No one knew where they were, no one knew they were trapped, no one would be looking for them. The blips of Morse code they were sending out into the polar night just dissipated into nothingness before even coming close to anyone that could mount a rescue. Even before the polar night set in, Shackleton spoke of mirages. He writes, quote, Mirages were frequent. Barrier cliffs appeared all around on the 29th, even in places where we knew there was deep water. We seemed to be drifting helplessly in a strange world of unreality." Unquote. In one of the most tragic stories I've come across, in 1899, a ship called the Belgica became stranded, much like Shackleton's crew were now stranded. 
And this is a story I want to share with you because it showcases just how bad things could get. The crew on the Belgica's expedition didn't get along from the start, and when the polar night set in, chaos ensued. The crew experienced severe depression. They couldn't concentrate, couldn't eat. We know now these may have been symptoms of T3, SAD, and winter over syndrome at their worst. One man began to believe the rest of the crew was out to kill him and would squeeze himself into the smallest crevices of the ship he could find to hide from them. Another man succumbed to what may have been heart failure, but his crew claimed he died from terror brought on by the darkness. To counteract what they believed was an onset of madness, the rest of the crew began walking in circles around the ship. This came to be called the Madhouse Promenade. Frederick A. Cook, who, along with Roald Amundsen, who would later be the first explorer to the South Pole, had managed to stay largely unaffected by the polar night. Some of the men had fallen into severe depressive states, and Cook would place them in front of the fire for hours at a time, believing that being exposed to the only form of light available would help them overcome the effects of the darkness. This was particularly intuitive, as subsyndromal seasonal affective disorder wasn't even a theory yet, but exposure to light is a way of offsetting its effects. So cheers to you, Cook. And that's just one of the many stories that ended in tragedy for the early polar explorers. Other stories include instances of violence, madness, men being shot, total despair, and even cannibalism. But the crew of the Endurance wasn't yet experiencing any of these symptoms or situations. The journals and accounts of the onset of their first polar night describe the atmosphere as generally cheerful. The darkness even seemed to bring them closer together as a unit. Despite the psychological dangers of polar life, there are actually positive effects that have been observed in individuals and groups living in polar isolation. NASA noted in their meta-analysis that successfully overcoming the challenges inherent in a polar lifestyle resulted in increased hardiness, greater coping skills, and resiliency. This could result in group solidarity and cohesiveness. Human beings are great at surviving. We evolved together in groups because the benefits of living as social animals has greatly outweighed the benefits of living as solitary ones. And even as an introvert, I have to admit that's true. Our ability to adapt and to cooperate together has been key to our survival. So it's not a surprise that cooperative group dynamics would appear in survival situations like the one our crew found themselves in. By the way, if you feel like going down an internet rabbit hole of no return, grab a glass of wine, type evolutionary psychology into a search engine, and just go deep. The crew was described as being in good spirits, and they would continue to be, so why was this crew seemingly so much healthier mentally than that of the Belgica? Well, mood contagion probably had something to do with it. Emotions are contagious. Even one person, can have an effect on an entire group. You've probably experienced this yourself. This is why we generally don't like hanging out with people who are always negative. No one wants a Debbie Downer around all the time, and that's because we literally draw our own emotions to a large extent from the people around us. Most of the time, we don't even know we're doing this. Dr. Sigel Bardside, professor of management at the Wharton School, describes unconscious mood manipulation in her publication titled The Ripple Effect, Emotional Contagion and Influence on Group Behavior. 
By the way, things are about to get psychologically nerdy for the next few minutes, so buckle up your ids. Dr. Barside describes that when we're engaging in communication with those around us, we get 7% of our emotional understanding of a situation from the words actually being spoken. 38% of what we perceive is going on comes from our understanding of the verbal tone of what is being said. And 55%, most of our understanding, comes from reading the facial expressions of others. We even start mimicking the facial expressions of those around us, which is part of how we subconsciously begin to feed off of one another's emotions. I'll let Dr. Barsai describe this since she's about 10,000 times smarter than me. She wrote in her paper, quote, On the subconscious level, Hatfield and colleagues have offered evidence that primitive emotional cognition occurs through a quick, fleeting process of automatic, continuous, synchronous nonverbal mimicry and feedback. Psychological researchers have found that the first step of this process involves the process of people spontaneously mimicking each other's facial expressions, body language, speech patterns, and verbal tones. These mimicry effects, which have been found in studies examining infants, some as young as a few days old, are positioned to come from an innate human tendency towards mimicking the behavior of others. The second step in the contagion process comes from the self-feedback people receive from mimicking others' nonverbal behaviors and expressions. As myriad facial, postural, and vocal feedback studies have shown, once people have mimicked, they then experience the emotion themselves by inferring how they are feeling from their muscular, visceral, and glandular responses. An example of how this process could lead to emotional contagion is as follows. I see a smiling, happy person, which leads to my automatic subconscious mimicry of her smile, leading to a self-perception and feeling of happiness, which leads to my actually feeling happy. We usually think of emotion as originating only from the inside out. I feel happy, so I showed this by smiling outwardly. Emotional contagion shows that emotions can also be produced from the outside in. When you see someone smile, it makes you smile, and then makes you happy." Unquote. And that is a psychological mic drop. All of that means that even from the time we're infants, we gather at least some of our emotional attitudes and moods from people who we surround ourselves with, or are forced to be surrounded with, like maybe in a work setting. And most of the time, we don't even realize we're doing it. It's so innate in us that it's something that occurs naturally. And this is universal. It doesn't matter where someone is from. This is cross-cultural. That means it's not a learned behavior, but something we evolved, something that makes us human. So surround yourselves with good vibes, people. And if you're feeling a little negative, maybe go for a walk if you can, because whether any of us mean to or not, we are affecting those around us, consciously and subconsciously, all of the time. And trust yourself when you're feeling out of room or even another person, because you've learned since infancy how to read those around you. It's like a secret superpower you were born with. That's not to say we don't let bias and prejudice influence what we think too, because we do. So we're not perfect and our gut feelings aren't always foolproof. But your subconscious is designed to pick up facial and verbal cues because as we evolved, being able to read those around you is probably a valuable survival skill. We know that the crew of the Belgica didn't get along even before they got stranded. There were instances of fighting and arguments the whole way. That negativity being spurred on by one or more individuals was probably self-perpetuating. 
The negativity, anger, and depression just spiraled, escalated, and culminated into a total disaster for the whole crew, and it would lead to some of their deaths. But this emotional ripple effect in groups works both ways. If you have a dynamic person, or better, several persons, who are positive and cooperative, that becomes the leading dynamic in a group. This causes greater cooperation, less conflict, and more individual satisfaction from each group member. Dr. Barside even described that there is much evidence that this positive effect is associated with greater cognitive effort and ability to engage in more complex, logical reasoning and problem solving. This would have greatly helped to offset the emotional effects of the long polar night. The ability of the crew to get along, stay positive, and cooperate probably has a great deal to do with how successful they were. At least for now. Our history, though short, is wrought with events that transform our existence. Locked away and hidden within sacred vaults exists a treasure trove of events, inventions, and stoic occurrences hoping to shine once more. These gems have many facets. Some shine like beacons of hope and others are dim with warnings of future transgressions. Sometimes history is easily accessible and this is the history that we know by teachings. But what of the history that we were never taught? Sometimes we must act as thieves to steal the locked treasures of history and find out what secrets lie beneath. Join us as we pick the locks, open the hidden artifacts, and bring these treasures back from whence they came. Only on Ransack History, presented by Sound at Heart. I discussed in the last episode how Shackleton was a master of understanding group dynamics. He hired the officers of his crew based on their calm demeanors and the fact that he knew them from previous expeditions, so he knew they'd be able to stay loyal and keep their cool in dire situations. We can see now why this was so important. He hired the rest of his crew just based on whether he liked the look of them or not, so we can guess he was pretty decent at reading people. After doing the extensively obsessive amounts of research I've done for this series, I've come to believe that Shackleton's ability to affect group morale is his best leadership quality. We don't just subconsciously react to other people, we engage in conscious mood manipulation too. We look at those around us, compare their moods and attitudes to our own, those of others and the environment we're in, then we act and react in order to respond accordingly. Shackleton knew when his group needed a boost of morale, and he knew that boredom and miserable circumstances would undermine the atmosphere, so he kept his crew as busy as he could, and he rewarded them intermittently with treats of extra rations when blubber oil and seal meat started to degrade everyone's mood. So the polar night drew the crew of the Endurance even closer together. Blackborough, the stowaway, even became well-liked, and he was thought of now as one of the crew. They even played pranks on one another. Clark the biologist was always dredging for new specimens, so some of the men put cooked spaghetti into one of his formaldehyde jars. Apparently he became quite excited until he realized it was just a jar of pasta. On another occasion, Green the cook, who was a little tired of being called dough balls from having lost a testicle in an accident, made a cake for one of the men on his birthday. But really, he just put a bunch of frosting on a balloon, so when they cut into it, it exploded, and no one actually got any cake. Another time, he just put a bunch of frosting on a block of wood. 
but that's what you get for ribbing on old dough balls. They had a crank phonograph they used to play records with for an hour or two each Sunday night while they wrote in their diaries. But its use had to be regulated, as there was a shortage of needles. Apparently, when he was gathering supplies for their voyage, Wilde ordered 5,000 needles but failed to specify they were for a gramophone, so they ended up with an extra 5,000 sewing needles instead. And the right needles had a tendency to go bad pretty fast. I bet he thought about that mistake at least once a day. Leonard Hussey, the meteorologist, did have a banjo, and he was always willing to play for anyone who asked. I actually love the sound of a banjo, and I have great respect for people who can play it well. But I don't know how well I'd do if it were literally the only music I got to hear for the better part of two years of my life. Among the topics of discussion, food was usually first, followed by the war they had left behind. They were constantly wondering if it was over, how Brinton was handling it, and theorizing on what campaigns would be waged. They had no way of knowing just how massively brutal World War I had become. One night, the storekeeper Ortelise found a bicycle, of all things, in the hold of the ship. He promptly took it out for a joyride on the ice. He was gone for over two hours, and a search party had to go recover him. It's easy to lose track of time and distance when everything is in twilight and you have nothing on the horizon for reference. Apparently, Shackleton was not pleased when Orderlies returned. He allowed the crew some leniency to alleviate boredom, but he was a stickler about safety, and he didn't like it when anyone wandered too far from the camp, especially alone. The men called him Old Cautious, or Cautious Jack, behind his back. This seems like such a polite nickname for your boss. But he was right in this case to be a little irked. Ortelis could easily have fallen through the ice on the bike and had the weirdest Antarctic death of all time. But I get it, being crammed elbow to face with 27 other people, where there is literally no privacy, no shower, and every sound carries, maybe Ortelis just needed some alone time. I hope that bicycle ride was the best of his life. But as time went on, there were a couple of crew members whose attitudes seemed to darken a bit. George Marston, the artist, was getting a bit moody. Unlike most of the others, he had a wife and children at home who he missed dearly. Shackleton hired mostly single men because it was easy to get downcast when you missed your family. Shackleton had a wife and children at home too, but he didn't write about them and never mentioned in his book that he missed them. Like, not even once. Another man named Vincent started being a bit of a bully. He was always taking the best portions of food and taking more than his share of the grog. But Shackleton nipped that in the bud pretty quickly after someone complained to him about it. After one conversation with Shackleton, Vincent's demeanor was apparently changed. Shackleton was perceptive, and he stayed on top of making sure no one person was causing too much disturbance among the crew. A few weeks into the polar night, it was clear that boredom was getting the better of them, and they had to come up with more creative ways to pass the time. They once put on a mock trial where they accused Worsley of, quote, robbing a Presbyterian church of a trouser button out of the offertory bag and having turned the same to base and ignoble use, unquote. They all played roles. They had a judge, prosecuting and defense attorneys, and witnesses. Worsley was found guilty on all counts. 
Once a month, the photographer, Frank Hurley, would give what he called a lantern chat, in which he'd show pictures and tell stories of all the places he had been, namely Australia, New Zealand, and Java. They had a midwinter celebration in June. Hurley built a makeshift stage in the Ritz, which you'll remember was the name they'd come up with for the ship, and they all took turns performing which, whatever it was they could think of. Ordelis, the shopkeeper slash bicycle guy, dressed up as a minister and called himself Reverend Bubbling Love and gave an impromptu sermon. Another man dressed up as Her Professor von Schnappenbottom and lectured at some length on the science of calories. Greenstreet wrote all about this in his diary, and it sounds like it was one of the best nights of their lives. He wrote that same night, quote, I think I laughed most over Kerr, who dressed up as a tramp and sang Spagoni the Torador. He started several keys too high, and notwithstanding the accompanist, who was vainly whispering, lower, lower, and playing in a much lower key, he kept going until he lost the tune altogether. It was killing, and we all laughed until tears ran down our cheeks. McElroy, dressed up as a Spanish girl, and a very wickedly looking one at that, with very low evening dress and slit skirt showing bare leg above her stocking tops." Unquote. After this, Marston sang, Wilde recited The Wreck of the Hesperus, Hudson was, quote, a half-cast girl, Green Street was a red-nosed drunk, and Rickinson was the London streetwalker, unquote. Apparently, the evening ended sometime around midnight when they all closed with singing God Save the King and then ate some toast. Another night, they took a bunch of razors and shaved each other's heads. Apparently, even Shackleton got in on this one. So they all got a little weird, but they seemed to be enjoying themselves as best they could. But it was getting colder. The average winter temperature in Antarctica is minus 56.2 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 49 Celsius. The temperature in your freezer at home is probably zero degrees Fahrenheit, or minus 18 Celsius. So stick your head in there for a couple of minutes. Imagine it's three times colder and indefinitely windier, and you'd have a relative idea about the average day these guys were experiencing. Or maybe don't do that because you could hurt yourself and I don't want to get sued. By the way, the lowest temperature ever recorded on Earth was in Antarctica, at the Soviet Vostok station in July of 1983. It was minus 128.6 degrees Fahrenheit. That's minus 89.2 degrees Celsius. You could actually freeze your butt off. They were halfway through winter now, and the attitudes of the men feeding positivity off of one another, coupled with their wholeheartedly believing that spring would mean they would break free of the ice, allowed them so far to stay positive, albeit less comfortable than they had hoped. They were even enjoying themselves. But this was the best it was going to get. They were not stationary. They were traveling on pack ice with their ship and they started hearing things, ominous noises that gave them feelings of foreboding. Worsley wrote of this in his diary saying, quote, at times during the night, a distant, rich, deep booming note is heard, changing at times to a long creaking groan, which seems to carry a menacing tone, unquote. What they were hearing was the sound of ice. It was moving and rising and shifting, and it was closing in on the ship, not releasing it as they had hoped it would, but crushing it, gradually, plank by plank, in a slow death. And for the first time, 
they were beginning to understand that there might not be a happy ending to their story. The sounds they were hearing of the ice slowly closing its grip on the endurance were itching in the back of everyone's mind. The cheerfulness and hopefulness of the crew almost seemed like an overcompensation for the denial that anything could possibly go wrong. Then came the storm. On July 15th, a huge gale battered the ship. 70 mile per hour winds tore through the rigging. The falling snow mingled with the wind whipping violently over the landscape made it impossible to see or to move. It was total whiteout, like a sandstorm of ice and snow. To get food to the dogs that were still tied fast to their dogaloos on the ice, the men had to crawl on their bellies to be kept from being swept away. It was minus 34 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 36 degrees Celsius, 100 tons of snow and ice, that's almost 91,000 kilos, piled against the side of the ship in the storm. The floes trapping the ship buckled under the weight but refused to loosen their hold, and the ship sank with them another foot into the sea. The dogs were given extra lard to help them fight off the cold, and Shackleton ordered all free hands to move as much of the snow and ice away from the dogaloos as possible, for fear the pack ice the dogaloos were sitting on would buckle and sink, taking all the dogs with it. When the storm finally subsided and the snow and wind settled, the crew looked out onto a landscape that had significantly changed. Huge pressure ridges of ice appeared, polished smooth by the wind. The ice flows had gone from being a solid mass of ice to being broken up into smaller flows, shattering the illusion of solid ground. To the north, they could see open water, but the ship was still trapped firmly in the ice and there was no way to get to it. The breaking up of the ice didn't bring the escape they were hoping for. The smaller flows would now be driven into one another repeatedly by the currents and wind, creating even more pressure buildup against the sides of the ship. This was felt as well as heard. The ship would shake and vibrate as if there was an earthquake each time the pressure squeezed just a bit harder, throwing things off of shelves onto the floor. The sounds of the ice grinding into the hall were booming out every day now, and the crew could do nothing but listen to their ship scream its resistance. The illusion of security was falling away quickly, and the men were starting to lose hope for the first time. Almost as an answer to their despair, the sun rose for the first time at noon and stayed up for one full minute, bringing a small sliver of respite from the worry they were all feeling. It was the first time they had seen the sun in 79 days. A space on deck was quickly cleared for the dogs in case new cracks appeared in the flow, forcing them to hurriedly save them before they were lost to the Weddell Sea. On the horizon there was open water, and the crew could watch huge chunks of ice weighing many tons each being slammed up against one another until they were pushed out of the water like they were made of nothing but air. Shackleton wrote in his account, quote, we could see from the masthead that the pack was piling and rafting against the mass of ice, and it was easy to imagine what would be the fate of the ship if she entered the area of disturbance. She would be crushed like an eggshell amidst the shattering masses." Unquote. These were anxious days. The ship was described as sounding like a haunted house. 
The pressure would squeeze the ship, and it would suddenly sound like a huge clap of thunder had entered the room. The men would shoot up from their sleep, waiting for something to happen, laying back down again after realizing it was just another false alarm. They didn't get much sleep, and these scares grew common. Worsley wrote in his diary, quote, Just after midnight, there was a series of loud and violent cracks, groans and bumps to the ship, making her jump and shake fore and aft. Many dressed hastily and rushed on deck. Personally, I've got tired of alarms, against which we can do absolutely nothing. So when the loudest crash came, I listened to make sure that no ripping, tearing sound of smashing timbers was indicating an entrance of the ice into the hold, then turned over and went to sleep." Unquote. Being resilient as they were, they stayed busy, and the sun was out for about three hours a day now, adding to their energy. Stores of food and rations were made ready in case either the ship broke free or in case they had to abandon her. If the ship sank, the plan was to take the dogs, the sledges, and the three whaling boats and march their way over the pack ice towards land. If the flows became unpassable, they would have to abandon the sledges and take to the boats, hoping those two wouldn't become crushed in the pressure of the flows. Shackleton knew the men were stressed, and he encouraged them to play hockey on safer flows. The puppies that had been born before winter had set in were harnessed and began their training. The dogs seemed to play a big part in keeping up the morale of the crew, as did one cat, Mrs. Chippy, that had been their companions since leaving Europe. Mrs. Chippy was actually a mister, but no one had realized that in time, and the missus stuck. By September, the temperature rose to 1.9 degrees above zero. That's about minus 17 Celsius. The crew, after having become so acclimated to the cold, felt like this was a heat wave. They were moving about on deck with bare heads and hands, and the warmer temperatures meant the return of spring and all the animal life it promised was on its way. But near the end of October, it was obvious there was no way to save the ship. Too much damage had been done. She was flooding, ice was weighing everything down. They tried pumping water out, chopping the ice away, even tried starting the engine again when a small opening appeared in the ice. But it was all futile. Lansing wrote in his book Endurance about the night they abandoned ship, quote, about four o'clock, the pressure reached new heights. The decks buckled and the beams broke. The stern was thrown upward 20 feet and the rudder and stern post were torn out of her. The water ran forward and froze, weighing her down in the bow, so that the ice climbed up her sides forward, inundating her under the sheer weight of it. She was done, and nobody needed to tell them. Shackleton nodded to Wilde, and Wilde went forward along the quaking deck to see whether anybody was in the forecastle. He found Howe and Bakewell trying to sleep at their turn at the pumps. He put his head inside, She's going, boys, he said. I think it's time to get off, Unquote. They hoisted the Union Jack up the forward yardarm so that when she finally sank, she would at least have her colors flying. She had been trapped in the ice for 10 months. If everything had gone to Shackleton's original plan, they would have been nearly done with their entire expedition by now. But they hadn't even started. Critics had told Shackleton his plan was too audacious the whalers he met at South Georgia had told him the pack ice was too relentless that year and that he should wait until the following season, but he had listened to no one. Now he was stranded, his crew was exhausted, the ship was all but sunk, 
and the expedition was over. They hadn't even hit land. It was time to admit that there would be no transcontinental crossing. All they could do now was try and make it out alive. There was a scrambling of dogs and men and supplies all being moved around. The flows they were on kept cracking, and supplies were being hoisted from one flow to another to keep them safe. They ended up moving everything to an ice flow about 200 yards, or 183 meters, from the crushed ship. They set up camp in tents, and the crew tried sleeping while Shackleton stayed awake, pacing on the flows, deciding what to do. His plan now was to reduce their supplies to the bare minimum and march over to Paulet Island about 346 miles or 557 kilometers away. There were some food stores that had been left there in 1902 that Shackleton was counting on them to find. They would drag two of the smaller boats behind them in case they hit open water. The boats with their sledges weighed over a ton apiece and how Shackleton thought they would be able to haul all of this over unstable ice with pressure ridges that rose over two stories high in places is a mystery to me. Shackleton was an experienced explorer, but he would make a series of decisions now that seem like obvious mistakes. He was about to tell his men that they would be leaving most of their food and supplies behind because the sledges were going to be heavy, he was putting all of his eggs in the Paulet Island basket. He was banking everything on finding those stores from 1902. Reading the accounts of disastrous expedition after disastrous expedition, the pattern seems to be that you can't make Antarctica fit your itinerary. People got in trouble when they weren't prepared for more than one scenario, especially when that included bringing the least amount of food with you as possible. Shackleton had a one-track mind about walking over the ice to Paulet Island. Once the sledges were packed, Shackleton called the crew to the circle of tents, and with a grave expression, told them the new plan. He said that everything had to be reduced to the bare minimum. Each man was allowed the clothes on his back, two pairs of mittens, six pairs of socks, two pairs of boots, one sleeping bag, one pound of tobacco, and two pounds of personal equipment. The camp they were in now, that they had set up next to the ship, was dubbed Dump Camp because of how much they were going to leave here. Anyone with a diary was allowed to keep it, and I'm thankful for that because much of the information we still have about all of this comes from those diaries. Knowing how the morale under such a severe environmental conditions coupled with grueling physical labor could get, Shackleton ordered Hussey to bring his banjo, even though it weighed 12 pounds, or roughly five and a half kilos. Music has a way of livening spirits even in the worst of circumstances. They were all ordered to be severe in ridding the loads of extra weight, regardless of the personal value their items may have held. To show he was sincere, Shackleton pulled a gold cigarette case out of his coat, along with some gold sovereigns, and threw them on the ground in front of his men. Then, in a rather dramatic show, he took out the Bible that had been given the crew by Queen Alexandra. He ripped out the page containing the 23rd Psalm, then flipped the pages to the book of Job. He tore out this verse and read it aloud. Out of whose womb came the ice and the hoary frost of heaven? 
who hath gendered it. The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. A verse so appropriate, it almost seems like it could have been written just for them. Then he laid the Bible in the snow and walked away. He was concerned mostly about speed now, and leaving the majority of supplies to melt into the sea with the sinking ship was his way of assuring himself that they wouldn't be weighed down. In his book, he doesn't dwell much on how he left so much behind, he just mentioned they would find the stores from 1902 and that he was concerned about speed. It wasn't only personal items and food stores that Shackleton thought of as being unnecessary weight. It was animals, too. Trigger warning, if you couldn't watch the ending of Old Yeller, skip ahead a few minutes. The first animal to be killed was Mrs. Chippy, the cat that had been their mouser and companion on the ship. Next were three of the youngest puppies, as they were considered too small and too inexperienced to be of any use. Then there was Sirius, an older puppy from an earlier litter. No one had been able to train him for sledging, but he was very loved, especially by Macklin, one of the physicians. The other animals had been taken behind one of the pressure ridges and been shot by Crean, the expedition's second officer. But Macklin felt it was his duty to take care of Sirius himself. He led Sirius away from the others until he found a quiet spot. He stood there in front of his dog for quite some time. The puppy wasn't making it easy, either. He was friendly and enthusiastic and had no idea what was going on, and he kept jumping up in excitement and licking Macklin's hands. I can't imagine how hard this must have been. Macklin was already lost, his expedition canceled, he missed his family, who was thousands of miles away, suffering a war, and he had no idea what would become of him and his crewmates. He was helpless. And now he had to kill his dog and leave everything he had behind. He finally steeled himself enough to shoot Sirius in the neck. But his hands were shaking so badly because of this awful situation that he had to reload his gun and shoot his dog a second time before he finally died and Macklin left him in the snow. And that is how, on October 30th, 1915, the crew set out on foot for Paulet Island. <laughs> Grueling is perhaps too kind a word for the course the crew was on now. You'd think the fact they were hauling everything over the ice would have made the way easy, but it wasn't even ground, and the ice was covered in layers of snow that made pulling and pushing the sledges and carrying their boats and supplies so strenuous. They would only cover a mile and a half in six days. Pressure ridges are a pile-up of pack ice, occurring when tidal forces and wind cause flows to collide with one another. They are the thickest features of ice on a frozen sea and contain as much as half of the ice volume in pack ice. The average thickness of one of these pressure ridges is between 16 feet and 98 feet, or 5 meters and 30 meters, respectively. The largest on record was 148 feet, or 45 meters, from top to bottom. They can be monstrous, and the crew could not avoid them. They would hit one every few hundred yards. 
Most of their time was spent hacking with picks at these pressure ridges until they could level out a path over which they could move the sledges, which weighed 900 pounds, or a little over 408 kilos apiece. The men would pull and strain as hard as they could until they were nearly parallel with the ground. The boats were so heavy that they would sink in the snow. I get sore just shoveling my driveway in the winter. I can't even imagine how strenuous pulling these loads through deep snow over hewn-out pressure ridges would have been. And as thick as the ice could be in places, it was unreliably fickle. Shackleton was afraid any given flow they were on would break, causing the party to become separated. Or worse, the snow could hide a deceptively thin flow, and half the party could fall through the ice with their supplies. And if things weren't bad enough already, it wouldn't stop snowing, and the temperature rose to 25 degrees, or minus 3 Celsius, which by now was a veritable heat wave to the crew that were used to much colder conditions. The physical labor coupled with how hot they felt, not to mention that sweat could freeze once exposed to the air, made things miserable. Shackleton wrote that the snow was at least two feet deep everywhere, and that they would sometimes sink up to their waists. On the sixth night of struggling to exhaustion over this frozen hellscape, they camped on a large ice floe they estimated was about ten feet thick, with another five feet of snow on top of that, and was about two years old. Looking ahead in the direction they wanted to go, it was obvious that making it to land this way was impossible. The pressure ridges only became bigger and more impassable. Shackleton knew now that they weren't going to make it to Paulet Island, and that it was time for a new plan. So it was a pretty huge bummer that he had made them leave literally tons of their supplies at dump camp. They would make camp now, where they woke up on the seventh day, and just hope that the pack ice would carry them towards land. There was literally no other option. They would just have to wait and hope the ice drifted in their favor. Once the ice became too thin, or the flow they were camping on began to break up, they would most likely have to take to open water and hope they could sail the rest of the way to land. It must have been hard having no control over the situation, especially for someone like Shackleton. He was used to actionable problems, and being powerless in such dire circumstances must have weighed heavily on him. And at this point, it became painfully obvious that they were going to need all of those supplies Shackleton had made them leave back at dump camp. The crew was pretty disheartened to hear that they had just trudged through the most physically grueling experience they had ever suffered through just to stop a mile and a half from where they had started. They could have just stayed at dump camp with all of their belongings from home, all the food, and let's not forget they had to sacrifice their cat and several dogs. And for what? To live in a new, less equipped spot within eyesight of where they just were? But Shackleton, realizing his morale was dropping, didn't let the crew stew in their disappointment. He knew that to offset misery, he needed to keep them busy, so he started issuing orders right away. He had most of the men start setting things up for the foreseeable future, and sent another party with a dog team back to dump camp to pick up as many belongings as they could, bringing them back to what they had dubbed Ocean Camp. They didn't know it, but Ocean Camp would be their home for the next two months. In his book, Shackleton didn't mention that leaving their supplies had been a mistake. He wrote simply, quote, 
I decided to conserve out valuable sledding rations, which would be so necessary for the inevitable boat journey as much as possible, and to subsist almost entirely on seals and penguins." Unquote. Seals and penguins were only available in the summer months, so Shackleton was believing he would be able to get everyone out of there before the next winter hit. I think this is why he left the supplies that they would need later. He just couldn't believe that they were going to need them. When Frank Wilde with 10 other men made it back to the ship, they discovered that under the weight of all the new fallen snow from the past week, much of the ship had become submerged underwater, which meant that many of the supplies they were hoping to recover were now irretrievable. They returned to Ocean Camp with the sad news. The next day, Shackleton sent them out to the ship again, and this time they had the brilliant idea of chopping a hole in the deck, which allowed some of the supply crates to float up to the surface. They were then able to secure a crate of walnuts, sugar, baking soda, flour, rice, dried vegetables, barley, lentils, and jam. Lucky for us, they also saved some of the photo negatives taken by Hurley the photographer, and many of these pictures survive, and with a quick Google search, you can see them today. Retrieving at least some of the food rations gave the men some renewed hope, and although Shackleton wanted to save the rations for the inevitable boat journey, he weaned them off of the good stuff in order not to shock them into a state of further depression. This was a smart move, and seemed to make a huge difference. He had Green the cook begin adding seal blubber into the food so the men could become accustomed to the taste. Until now, the blubber they had secured was for fuel, but they were going to have to tighten their belts now after having lost so much food, and being stuck again indefinitely. I've never personally had blubber, but accounts describe it as both fishy and gamey, which seems like a far cry from the tasty rations the crew was used to. In order to conserve food for the crew, the dogs were only given seal and penguin meat now, so that the dog pemmican could be added to the food for the crew. Dog food and blubber meals were not popular, and almost every conversation among the crew now was about food, how they missed it, what they were craving, and what their first meal would be if they could ever make it back home. Aside from recovering some of the submerged food supplies, the crew was able to secure the third whaling boat as well. This would prove to be a huge win later. They also saved some books, which helped stave off the boredom. One of these was a much-loved portion of the Encyclopedia Britannica. The crew would use these to settle arguments, sort of an old-world version of Google. But at one point, the crew got themselves worked up in a hot debate about money and exchange, and when they checked the encyclopedias, they realized the answers differed from all of their opinions, so they assumed the encyclopedias must have been wrong. And they started using some of the pages to light their pipes with. They also had a copy of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which seems like a pretty literarily appropriate thing. At night, Hussey would play his banjo while the other men would sing, pausing only to warm up his hands when his fingers froze until he could play again. Life at Ocean Camp was not a comfortable one, but the crew seemed to make the most of it. If life living on the ship was cramped, it must have felt spacious compared to the tents they were now sharing. Their reindeer skin sleeping bags were laid directly on the ice or on top of wooden planks salvaged from the ship to at least give some semblance of level ground. There were five tents and Shackleton was calculating and assigning who would go where. 
he put the most troublesome personalities in his own tent, so that their irritability and increasingly combative attitudes didn't leak through to the rest of the crew. The list of lacrimose men was growing, though most were still optimistic. McNeish the carpenter, who never used a ruler but somehow managed to have everything he built fit together exactly, was getting homesick. Shackleton ran out of room, so he put McNeish with Frank Wilde, his second in command. Wilde had a way of cheering up even the most melancholy of souls. He was like the horse whisperer of castaways. And this was far from the last time Shackleton would make use of Wilde's ability to cheer up the others in the darkest of times. They ate their meals sitting in the snow. They had no dishes, but each man had one aluminum mug. Everything, the dog food, the seal blubber, the flour, would just be poured into it all at once. To eat, they each had a spoon, and if they lost this, they had their fingers. There was no latrine, they would just all squat behind the same snow pressure ridge and hope that the wind blew in a kind direction. There was no toilet paper, either, they would just use pieces of ice. Talk about a chapped ass. That could not have been comfortable. Or sanitary, especially since they had no way to wash. The blubber smoke from a makeshift stove made out of an oil drum covered every inch of them in black, greasy soot that just clung to everything. On warmer days, some of them would attempt to wash with snow or melted ice, but the blubber oil on their skin didn't respond much to the little soap they had, and just moved it around in greasy smudges. Some of the men forewent washing their faces altogether, as they believed the extra layer of grime would help protect them from frostbite. So you can imagine the smell in the tents. And as winter began to give way to longer days, the temperature inside the tents would become extremely uncomfortable, especially with the body heat from everyone inside. Shackleton recorded a temperature of 82 degrees inside his tent. That's almost 28 Celsius. The snow on the men would melt as soon as they entered the tent, so the ground was a wet mess of grime mixed with water, and they had to sleep directly on it because there was no way they'd survive a night outside. So things were getting pretty gross and there were a lot of beards now. None of them would get to shave until they reached civilization again, if they ever would. To pass the time, they would play poker, pass around the books they hadn't smoked already, and talk mostly about food. Hunting became their chief concern, and Shackleton encouraged them to kill everything they could. They needed at least one seal a day to feed the men and the dogs. One man, Lewis Rickinson, the chief engineer, had a difficult time killing the seals, and I can absolutely understand that. Walking up to an animal that doesn't know it was supposed to be afraid of you, then killing it with a pickaxe to the brain would be traumatizing. They were trying to conserve bullets now. But eventually Rickinson's desire for survival and the knowledge that without the seal meat they would starve in three months hardened him. Shackleton discussed their ration situation with Wilde, and they estimated that they could live on full rations for three months if they could kill enough seals and penguins. It was decided then that full rations would be given for two months. Shackleton believed that by then, they would be able to begin their open boat journey. His new plan was to let the pack ice take them as far as it could, then get in the boats and sail 275 miles, or about 442 kilometers, to a place called Snow Hill, just off the Palmer Peninsula. Shackleton was betting they could then travel over the frozen ice to the peninsula, 
then go another 150 miles, or 241k, overland to Wilhelmina Bay, where a community of whalers worked in the summers. He was extremely confident that this plan would pan out, just like he'd been confident about every other plan he'd had so far that hadn't worked out. He calculated their rate of drift, latitude, wind speed, made a list of rations and checked it twice. So this plan couldn't fail, right? That's a big old bag of nope. This plan would fail too. They would drift, but only to almost the exact same latitude as where they had started. How completely disheartening is that? Nothing at all has worked out for these guys, and I can almost feel their frustration through the pages of their journals written over a hundred years ago. Things were awful, but they somehow kept their spirits up, at least until now. The morale would begin to fade, but the fact they stayed sane even this long makes me think they must have had a fortitude of optimism that was truly legendary. Trade out even one of these guys for anyone else and the whole thing could have been a disaster on the level of the Belgica, falling apart into mad promenades and hours staring at fires. The ice flow they were on was about a half mile wide, but as summer sun continued to emerge, it began to break up into smaller and smaller pieces. On November 14th, the temperatures rove above freezing for the first time that year, hitting 33 degrees, or almost 0.6 degrees Celsius. This made things even more miserable than before. The ice on their clothes and in their beards would melt during the day, making everything wet, their clothes, their sleeping bags. Shackleton wrote that one degree above freezing, most of the crew became sunburnt, and they were now afraid of getting heat stroke. If you're worried about heat stroke at 33 degrees, you're pretty hardy. Like Grizzly Adams met Brienne of Tarth and they had a baby and it was all these guys. Shackleton wrote about the heat saying, quote, The thaw consequent upon these high temperatures was having a disastrous effect upon the surface of our camp. The surface is awful, not slushy, but elusive. You step out gingerly, all is well for a few paces, then your foot suddenly sinks a couple of feet until it comes to a hard layer. You wade along this way, step by step, hoping gradually to regain the surface. Soon you do, only to repeat the exasperating performance ad-lib to the accompaniment of all the expletives that you can bear to bring on the subject. What actually happens is that the warm air melts the surface sufficiently to cause drops of water to trickle down slightly, where, on meeting colder layers of snow, they freeze again, forming a honeycomb of icy nodules instead of the soft, powdery, granular snow that we are accustomed to." Unquote. So they couldn't even walk very far on days like this, and hauling seals back to camp was almost impossible. But just as things were getting increasingly difficult and frustrating, Antarctica finally showed them a day of mercy. At the end of November, the midnight sun, the light they had so long missed, appeared along with a southerly wind that carried the heat away with it. They were able to take their sleeping bags out, lay them in the sun, and for the first time in weeks, they had a dry place to sleep. Shackleton was so struck with the beauty of the light and the mercy of the wind that he wrote, quote, I was up early, 4 a.m., to keep watch, and the sight was indeed magnificent. Spread out before us was an entire panorama of ice fields, intersected here and there by small broken leads, and dotted with numerous noble bergs, partly bathed in sunshine, partly tinged with the gray shadows of an overcast sky. 
As one watched, one observed a distant line of demarcation between the sunshine and the shade, and this line generally approached nearer and nearer, lighting up the hummocky lighting up the hummocky relief of the ice field bit by bit until at last it reached us and threw the whole camp into a blaze of glorious sunshine, which lasted nearly all day. He continues, adding to this pure glistening white of snow and ice made a picture which is impossible adequately to describe, unquote. But the beauty hid a silently growing threat the sun brought renewed hope in their situation, but it also meant that the ice they were living on wasn't going to be able to hold their weight indefinitely. Shackleton organized drills where everyone would pack the sledges and three boats as quickly as they could at the blowing of a whistle, so if the flow broke in the night, they at least had a plan. The whole time they were at Ocean Camp, they could see the Endurance a mile and a half away, still somehow hanging on to the surface of the very ice that had crushed her. They described it as if it were a comforting sight. Their ship, though ruined, was a connection to home. And when the ice finally melted enough to make it impossible for her to hang on any longer, she finally sank to her grave at the bottom of the icy Weddell Sea, where she remains to this day. In 2017, a team of underwater archaeologists attempted to find the wreck of the Endurance, making it all the way to the exact coordinates recorded by Shackleton. They had to abandon the search after their autonomous underwater vehicle, known as AUV-7, slipped under an ice flow where they had lost control of it. They were unable to retrieve it, given the conditions on the Weddell Sea, and had to leave without it. It very well may now be lying right on top of the wreckage of the Endurance. Two wrecks, 102 years apart. By the way, the average cost to build an AUV is 70,000 US dollars, and the instruments that can go on them can cost anywhere from 5,000 to 100,000 each. And they cost about $1,000 a day to operate, so that was a pretty big loss. Even today, with all of the technology we have at our disposal and everything we can do, we still can't hold our own against the Weddell Sea. The crew had been making trips out to the wreckage every few days to salvage as much as they could, but with the ship gone, nothing more was retrievable. When the Endurance sank, it happened fast. Shackleton spotted that she was sinking when he saw movement from the corner of his eye. He shouted, she's going, boys! And everyone scrambled from their tents, stopped whatever it was they were doing, and all stood together silently to finally watch the sinking of the Endurance. 25 days after they had abandoned ship, the stern rose in the air 20 feet, stood still there a moment, perched in the air, then slowly disappeared under the ice, leaving a small sea-black hole in the water where there was once a ship they'd called home. Even that was gone a moment later, covered with the pack ice that finally took her from them. And with that came a sinking feeling, the last connection they had with civilization was now severed. One of the men's journals recounts the whole incident, saying, quote, She went down, bows first, her stern raised in the air. Then she gave one quick dive, and the ice closed over her forever. It gave one a sickening sensation to see it. For, massless and useless as she was, she seemed to be a link with the outer world. Without her, our destitution seems more emphasized our desolation more complete. 
The loss of the ship sent a slight wave of depression over the camp. No one said much, but we cannot be blamed for feeling it in a sentimental way. It seemed as if the moment of severance from many cherished associations, many happy moments, even stirring incidents, had come as she silently upended to find a last resting place beneath the ice on which we now stand. When one knows every little nook and corner of one's ship as we did, and has helped her time and again in the fight that she made so well, the actual parting was not without its pathos, quite apart from one's own desolation, and I doubt if there was one amongst us that did not feel some personal emotion when Sir Ernest, standing on top of the lookout, said somewhat sad and quietly, She's gone, boys. Unquote. In his journal that night, Shackleton simply noted the ship had sunk, adding, I cannot write about it. To cheer the crew, Shackleton used his tried-and-true method of using food to ease the collective sorrow. He ordered a dinner of fish paste, rations, and biscuits. Not the comfort food I would have gone for, but apparently it was a hit. But the euphoria of the increased rations only lasted so long, and the crew was growing restless now. They were bored, and running out of things to keep them busy. They had waited for the pack ice to carry them closer to the Palmer Peninsula, but they weren't even coming close. Shackleton suffered from a bad attack of sciatica. This is caused usually when a herniated disc, a bone spur on the spine, or a narrowing of the spinal stenosis compresses the sciatic nerve, radiating what can be severe pain down the lower back and legs. The pain was severe and lasted for several days, and Shackleton was confined to his tent, unable to move much. This made it impossible for him to keep an eye on the social dynamics of the group or rouse them with his infectious confidence. The camp was quiet, with most of the crew foregoing conversation and going right to bed after their evening meal. Tension was in the air, and it was thick, and on December 20th, Shackleton decided it was time to move. Some of the crew were excited to move on. Tired of having no control over their situation, they wanted to act, even if acting was potentially dangerous. Some of the others were not so keen on Shackleton's decision to leave camp, believing it was smarter to wait with the drifting ice. They were worried Shackleton would again make them leave supplies and personal items for the sake of speed. They were concerned about food, and rightly so, and that the ice was too soft to haul anything over its surface. Dragging their things to ocean camp had been a grueling six-day affair, and they had only made it a mile and a half for all their suffering. It's understandable they didn't want to revisit that kind of hell. These clashing viewpoints became heated discussions inside the tents, although no one would dare broach the topic with Shackleton. Though they were in a place belonging to no country, no set of laws, they still viewed him as the ultimate authority, and they would follow him, even if it meant their death. All Shackleton wrote in his book was that the camp was abuzz with anticipation, so he either didn't know his decision was causing dissension, or he didn't care. But we can see Shackleton's reasoning. The plan was again to hit Paulet Island. At the rate and direction they were drifting, they wouldn't hit their needed latitude until March, and that was a dangerous time to be on the ice. They simply weren't drifting fast enough or far enough, so the plan was to march west until they hit open water, at which point they would launch the boats. They had been at ocean camp nearly two months now, and it was time to move. 
Again, Shackleton ordered a great deal of food supplies to be left behind. To ease the tension, he told the crew that they would be celebrating Christmas on December 22nd, the day before they would set off on the next leg of the journey. This appeased most of the crew, all but the staunchest of protesters. Regardless of their feelings about Shackleton's decision, everyone ate. They ate everything they could. They gorged themselves for a full day and were allowed whatever they wanted. It had now been over a year since they left home, and this was the best meal they had had since. And if they couldn't take it all with them, they were going to eat it. Anchovies and oil, baked beans, and jugged hair were all on the menu. They ate like kings, for the last time. The next day at 3 a.m., when the air was at its coldest and the ice its hardest, they began their march. But their journey was far from over. They had been at the mercy of the ice longer than they had hoped, but the ice would prove to have been a mercy compared with what they would face in the coming months. The open sea. The real adventure was just beginning. That concludes part two of Shackleton's Lost Voyage. Part three is going to be the most epic episode in this series, so stay tuned. I'm trying so hard to wrap up this series in just one more episode, but so much is still going to happen, and I am so fascinated by all of it. But no matter what, you guys are still getting three bonus episodes this month because I love Halloween almost as much as I love history, and I wanted to give you all some extra episodes to celebrate the season and to show you how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this show and give it a chance. If you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. I seriously would love to hear from you. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to donate to the show, I would be beyond grateful, and you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month, which comes out to 50 cents per episode, not including the bonus episodes, so throw a couple quarters into my head if you're up for it. And if not, that's cool. I certainly couldn't afford to donate to every podcast I listen to. You can still help by subscribing and rating the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And I think more people should know about Mrs. Chippy. I've been your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and until we meet again, my beloved adventurers of podcast land that transcend the bonds of time and space, go make some history. History.